and welcome to the History Department at Northern Kentucky University. This episode is part of an eight-episode series from the fall of 2021. As part of Professor Brian Hackett's Honors 320 Forbidden History class, students broke into eight groups to provide podcast episodes where they would discuss interesting events from regional history. We provide them here for you uncut as recorded, and we'll continue to provide additional content as it is created here on campus at the department's podcast studio. These first episodes are rough, but showcase that incoming first-year students can take the lessons learned over the course of a semester to create new and interesting content within a matter of weeks. We hope that you will enjoy these podcasts as much as the students enjoyed creating them. Hello, and welcome to our podcast. My name is Emma Talent. And I'm Ansley Cahill. And today we're going to be talking about human zoos. <laughs> um, so let's start with some basics, like what were they, uh, when were they, and why? So in general, if you've ever been to a zoo and seen like animals behind bars and like the whole concept of the zoo, and just imagine it with humans instead, an incredibly racist, poorly like humanistic concept mm -hmm. that was generally just kind of horrible in all senses. And uh, from the research that I did, it was really popular in uh, like Europe and they would take or hire uh, like through contract people from, uh, well, either Native Americans or people from Oceania, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, to just, yeah, have them perform their culture. They also had a fascination with the Native people who were somehow different than Europeans saw themselves as, such as those uh, indigenous populations that would uh, file their teeth or do the uh, neck stretching things that you probably learned about in one of your world history classes. Yeah. Just in general people who were not like them, despite uh, from things other than just skin color and mm -hmm. ethnicity. I think a really kind of disturbing part of it is that the the people who were being put on display, like sometimes genuinely thought that the Europeans wanted to learn about their culture and that's why they, you know, were so willing to, to do it. But in actuality, the Europeans were just really looking to mock them or be like, look at these savages. I think it's particularly horrible that in some cases these people were hired to take care of the animals that would have been on display with them rather than just being on display themselves. Yeah. Oh, what next? Can we talk about timeline? Yeah, well, sure. Let's talk about the timeline. <laughs> um, would you like me to talk about the timeline? Or do you want to talk okay. about it? Um, okay, so from in one article, uh, exhibiting the other then and now human zoos in southern China and Thailand, by Alexander Trupp, uh, he mentions really from the 18th to the early 20th century, human zoos were a form of public exhibition in which the objects of display were real people. We also see like traces of the human zoos before that, not in a whole zoo settings. It's things like the um, ancient Egyptians having oh, a fascination. Oh, uh, Yes, we, we literally just talked about this. <laughs> I'm sorry, I forgot about that. Ancient Egyptians having fascination with dwarves and just bringing them to be displayed even though they were kind of made, they were seen as like religious objects, they were still on display to a bunch of people. And it, it got really um, 
like obvious during the age of exploration when people like Hernandez Cortez would bring Aztecs back or uh, uh, the French King Henry II had uh, Indians from Brazil, and um, and then again in, in 1654, where Eskimos were brought to Denmark to be displayed to uh, King Frederick III. And um, again, from this one article that I am looking at right now, human zoos really ended uh, in Europe, at least by the 1940s. Um, but ethnic tourism still exists. What next? Uh, you want to talk about imperialism? That's because it's the justification for it. Sure. So I'm assuming most of the people listening to this have taken a world history class or some kind of history class and have heard about imperialism, where the European and Western cultures kind of went into Africa and all these other countries and just divided it up and just kind of took what they wanted. And a lot of that is the way they like justified this is by displaying these people from these countries and being, look how savage they are. Mm -hmm. They need us. Yeah. It's the whole, um, not sure if many people have heard this, but there's a, a story by, um, I believe it's Reard Kipling called The White Man's Burden. And it's, um, it is the white person's burden to go in and civilize all the barbaric races to bring them into the age of being like all the rest of the world and disregard their cultures, but at the same time not caring anything about them and using them as slaves and pretty much just taking whatever you want, having a nice, pretty justification of it. It really makes you roll your eyes today. Like how, just like the, the mental hoops you would have to jump through to to be like, we are the only, the only ones who know what we're doing and nobody else does. Everyone else is savages. It's just hard for me to imagine. But I know, obviously, that was the prevailing belief at the time. And it's particularly hard for me as like an anthropology student, an archeology span student, because you see all these incredible works by these so-called savage races that the Europeans were willing to justify any way they possibly could that wasn't them, like lost tribes of Israel, it's the Egyptians coming back, that it clearly was not these indigenous populations that could have made something so incredible and they were just willing to do whatever it took to justify that they were in fact superior somehow. So a more recent example of human zoos, well, less of a human zoo, more of a ethnic tourism, is in 2012, a video was released of a uh, safari trip on um, India's uh, Andaman Island. Mm -hmm. It's in the Bay of Bengal, and um, on there a tribe lives called the Jarwa tribe. And this video shows um, this safari group giving these people um, bananas to make them dance. Yeah. And like asking them to dance for these bananas and from the way the video is pictured, it's obviously not a new thing. Like people are aware of what these uh, tourists want. So it's... But one, one important thing was the like these people had just began having contact with the, the mainland and their willingness uh, to do this uh, for a safari was obviously exploited because, again, they didn't really know 
what they what they had signed up for because they had never um, interacted with this kind of this kind of person before. Yeah, it was kind of kind of sad and pretty pretty horrible thing to have done. So, and in 2012, no less. And what's even worse about this is um, at the entrance to this preserve that these people were living on, there was a sign forbidding the interaction or feeding of the tribe's people. Wow. Like one would find in front of a zoo. Yeah, with like, for animals. Uh. In um, 2013, however, the Indian Supreme Court uh, ordered a complete ban on such safaris. But um, there's been claims that such safaris still continue covertly, despite that. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, uh, that's, that's the way of the world, I suppose. Well, <laughs> what now? I guess we could talk about that it wasn't also, it wasn't just uh, Western cultures that you, um, had human zoos, right? Mm -hmm. um, for example, there were some in Japan uh, that were, um, who had people from Korea. I am not off the top of my head sure what timeline that was. I believe it was also the, the Japanese native population that I knew maybe, because mm. the uh, Japanese people who currently live, the, the, what we see as Japanese people are actually from China, and there was already an indigenous population living in mm. Japan at the time the Japanese came over. So actually in the um, past decade, there have been human zoos in uh, China as a uh, display of the ethnic groups in China. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's for the um, Han Chinese populations to see the uh, lesser Chinese peoples. To display difference yet promote unity. It was the the theory behind it, but in actuality, it's pretty much very similar to what has been going on, what went on during colonialism. Yes, and if you've ever researched anything into China, you notice that there is very many, like multiple ethnic groups that are in China, not just the Han Chinese that mm -hmm. created the Beijing and all the dynasties and stuff. So since we've been focusing on here, bring it back to close to us in the United States. Um, ever heard of The Greatest Showman? Oh yes, let's yeah. let's talk about P.T. Barnum, please. So we've all we've all seen the hit musical with Hugh Jackman, Zac mm -hmm. Efron, Zendaya. Great song. The very yeah the the very catchy music. Great songs. Very very pretty. All about how you accept people as they are. Like our differences are good. Like all in all, it, like one of the reviewers said, it is a movie about P.T. Barnum that P.T. Barnum would have written about himself. Absolutely, because in actuality, he was a pretty awful person. Yeah, definitely. Just using the people <laughs> that he brought in, not actually uh, believing 
what the greatest showman says he believed. Yes, and um, if you've ever heard about some of the animal abuse of uh, circus animals, such as the beating of elephants with a claw hammer, there's a popular book called The One and Only Ivan about this, and P.T. Um, Barnum is the one who uh, profiteered from that idea and created that idea to make the elephants perform as he wished. Of course he was the one to create that idea. That does not shock me at all. There's also a story that he um, somehow acquired two beluga whales to put on display. He kept them in a water tank in the basement of his building, and they both died, strangely enough. Wow. I didn't. I had no idea about that one, actually. Yeah, so not, not the greatest person ever. No, not the greatest person ever, for sure, for sure. He's also one of the original people to display the idea that the African-American person, or the African, was the missing link between the ape and the white man. Damn. By dis actually displaying African-American slaves and those with um, skin conditions causing them to have um, increased hair on their bodies mm -hmm. as that so-called missing link. If you've seen The Greatest Showman, it's the guy who looks like a dog. That's that, that oh. suits. That, yeah, that's really not... <laughs> the movie is really not true to history at all. It is, it is not. It's, it is something else. Well, another uh, pop culture reference to the human zoo, I would say, is The Lone Ranger. Have you seen that movie? The uh, recent one. I know there's, there's not, older ones. Not in its entirety, no. Well, anyway, at the, the very opening of the film, like the premise of it, is basically that Tonto, the Native American, is is in a human zoo telling people his story, or not a human zoo, he's at um, a carnival uh, living there, telling people, in, in you know, the, the freak show tent or whatever, telling people about his story. And it wasn't really until I started learning about human zoos that I was like, wait a second, this is, this is basically just a human zoo scene in a 2013 movie. Yes, it's kind of something that gets a bit brushed over because we're like, look, they're showing, these native peoples are showing us they're like, it's their culture, it, nobody's like making them do anything when in fact they're just being put on display for others to watch and yeah. talk at. Yeah. Another super obvious example of this is the uh, St. Louis uh, World's Fair in 18... I can't remember the date. Sorry. No, you're good, you're good. I've, I've definitely forgotten a couple of dates. In the meantime, while you're looking that up, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the Native Americans that were in uh, human zoos. Uh, in, the, in one other article, um, this is The Exhibited Body, the 19th Century Human Zoo. Um, it goes into depth a little bit about how human zoos were really 
used to help add to the idea of the quote, the trope of the dying Indian, in order to get across to all of the white settlers, all of the white, a really audience, I guess you would say, to show that, well, the Native American uh, way of life is dying out anyway, so we might as well just go ahead and settle their land because their way of life isn't, isn't sustainable anyway. And that was much more common initially in Europe, but it eventually spread to, the, to North America, to the United States as well later on. This article also um, notes that um, these people were called, quote, professional savages, which is not great. And they also, again, were working in the murky realm of partial consent, trusting their livelihoods and their lives to the promises of the showman, uh, not really fully understanding how, uh, how they were being portrayed and thinking they were just, again, exhibiting their culture when in fact, uh, their, their being on display was being used for a much more nefarious purpose. So I did find the date for that uh, St. Louis World's Fair, also known as the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. It's from 1904. Really? I had no idea it was that, yes. that close in time. Yeah, it was, um, actually if you've ever seen pictures of it, it's pretty neat looking. Just except for the fact that there are people. So they um, took people from all around the world and uh, constructed habitats for them that look similar to where the, the villages that they mm -hmm. lived in or the places that they were and brought animals from said villages there and just had them live in these enclosures and continue their normal way of life while um, people came in and watched them. Yeah. And kind of just watched as they went about their lives. There was um, multiple. There was a scientist from the Smithsonian who um, had a deal with the uh, fairs um, administration that any of the people who died at the St. Louis World's Fair, he was allowed to have their brains. And those brains are still embalmed and kept at these in the Smithsonian archives to this day. Ew, that's that is disgusting. Yeah, and um, actually, the head of the St. Louis. Uh, World's Fair project was the uh, top American anthropologist of his day. Wow. And um, during this time, anthropologists had this um, kind of theory that went, um, you went barbarianism is at the bottom and then you went up to civilization and mm -hmm. you just classified people along this spectrum. And as you can imagine, most of the people on display at the St. Louis World's Fair were in the Barbarianism. Needless to say, anthropology has evolved a lot since that point in time. Yes, indeed it has. <laughs> yeah. So one of the most famous, um, I guess, exhibits from the St. Louis World's Fair is a man named Otabenga, mm -hmm. and he was from um, the Turi Rainforest, and he was a Natubian. I think they, um, most people would know him as a pygmy from Africa, mm -hmm. so they were smaller than the average human. And um, as I spoke of before, one of the anomalies the Europeans were looking for, his tribe, they sharpened their teeth as a um, kind of ritual scarification thing. Mm -hmm. And um, he was kept on display there, and then he was brought to the Bronco Zoo to be displayed in a cage in the monkey house. Wow. As the missing link. 
Wow. And sometimes he would be displayed with a monkey, and he, he had his own, um, I believe he had his own scientific name as well. There. And it was a big controversy between the um, uh, African-American religious leaders and Methodist churches and stuff mm-hmm. about um, how wrong it was to have a black man on display as the missing link yeah. between humans and monkeys. What point, What period in time did you say this was? Uh, 1906. 1906. Yes. Uh, Odubenga actually died in 1916 from suicide. Oh. Yeah. It was... Well, then another example, um, going back to the St. Louis World Fair, is the advertisements that there were for the um, for the human zoos there. You get things like, um, this is the food that this Eskimo baby that was on display at the St. Louis World Fair was eating, and look how much weight it has gained. Wow. You should get this for your child. Don't you want to be unique? Uh, I didn't even realize they had like babies and children in these. They uh, brought entire populations. Wow. So, is this true or not? I'm not sure. But just by looking at the pictures from all these St. Louis Rofords, I get a feeling that most of the, like some of the black and white images we see in our textbooks Mm -hmm. showing the indigenous populations of areas may have actually been taken at human zoos. Yeah, yeah. Because it seems unlikely that someone would take a camera all the way out to the Philippines and take pictures of these specific people and everything look as staged as it does. Mm-hmm. This is definitely the, whenever I see a historical photograph, I'm always like, they had to have had so much, like even if it looks like it's normal life, there had to have been so much staging involved because the cameras aren't like the cameras today. You can't just you know, snap a picture in 1908. You have to carefully arrange the lighting, carefully arrange the people, and then develop the photograph. So I, I definitely agree that um, some of the things that they try to pass off as real life, like in their real environments, probably uh, probably were from a human zoo. Hopefully we can try and find an example of one of those to throw up on screen right now. <laughs> but if not, um, I'm sure I'm sure people in the audience know or have seen like this is what the Eskimos lived in, their igloo, but there's a whole lot of debate in the uh, uh, anthropological community actually on the impact of like videos like um, these documentaries on the lives of these indigenous people like Nanook of the North. Yes, yes. Where that actually like completely disrupted their way of life for a while and it's not correct in the way that they lived. It was more sensationalized for the uh, European population. I remember also reading about that one that like they uh, they did things in that documentary that they hadn't been doing for like decades. Like the way they hunted a walrus, I believe it was, hadn't actually been done that way because guns exist, existed at that point in time, but they showed it as though they were hunting with spears still, to the great danger of everyone, all of the native people involved in that shot. Yeah. It's, once again, like, even without, like, while there's not such a visible example as a human zoo, there's still a kind of impression that we have of people now, of like, we are more civilized than them, like, mm-hmm. let us watch. 
yeah. this spectacle before us. Like, it is something we've never seen before, so we're going to gawk and watch at it. Yeah, like, human zoos don't exist, but the echoes of what they represent definitely do. A little bit of speculation here on my part. I kind of wonder if one of the reasons human zoos started dying out uh, was because of film. I'm saying this, of course, as a film student, uh, but I know that when document like short documentaries became more popular, when video or yeah, like film became easier to come by, people would often like film people in, you know, uh, quote, savage environments and then take it back and show it to United States audiences, to European audiences. And I wonder if, if maybe that kind of contributed to the, the need for the exotic that, uh, you know, that people had at that time. I feel like I kind of have to agree with you because I feel like at some point having people on display comes le becomes less profitable. And while I would like to say everyone had like a big wake up of moral yeah, conscience yeah. to be like, this is wrong, I seriously doubt that happened. And yeah. if I had to guess, it had something to do with money or like with the Odebenga situation, enough people protested against it that mm -hmm. they kind of stopped. Yeah. Another part of that St. Louis World's Fair is, um, you ever heard of social Darwinism? Uh, yes. Yes, the belief that some of us are on a higher level than others, selection of the fittest, white man is at the top, we are the most evolved. Strangely enough, we are probably the least evolved of us, because uh, genetically wise, the most uh, genetic diversity is in Africa. Not the point, but, so um, Odobinga actually, like his whole situation contributed to this idea of uh, social Darwinism because the um, owners of the Bronx Zoo and the uh, uh, the Met, I believe, mm -hmm. or the, is it the Met? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. It's, you like the natural, it's not the Smithsonian one, it's the one in New York about oh, the, natural science. Yeah, the Natural History Museum, think, is that it? I think Natural History is the Smithsonian. Uh, Whatever, whatever that museum in New York is called. The American Museum of Natural History. Yes, that one. Um, the chairmans of that had an exhibit where they um, measured the brain sizes of the people who had died at the St. Louis World's Fair and ranked the human populations by who was most closest to the monkeys and who was furthest from the monkeys. Mm -hmm. And at the top of it, you got the... Um, Aryan male, and at the bottom you've got the African male, mm -hmm. and it just goes up the line. And in the drawings of it, you they're they're drawings not of actual people, and the African looks extremely similar to an orangutan who they believed was the most closest ancestor to humans at the time. Yeah. And a lot of these ideas then went on to promote the Nazi idea of the perfect Aryan race. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things they may not teach you in history class. A lot of the ideas from the Nazis came from the United States. What was the, eugenics? Is that what that yes. was called? Yes. All of the the studies of the like quote different races and yes, yes. I remember learning about that vaguely. Yes. The um, display for social Darwinism was also a museum exhibit on eugenics, and I believe they sterilized 
300,000 people. Wow. Is it, this is a big range, but it's either 300,000 or 3,000. <laughs> either way, it's pretty terrible. And it was mostly um, those that were mentally unfit in the idea of this um, 20th century United States. So mostly those who were in mental hospitals, um, some Native American peoples, some African Americans, like anyone who was not white and did not fit this perfect mold people had of humanity. The, the white man had of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were uh, sterilized or executed somehow. This is, uh, this is very terrible that this was happening in, you know, the early 1900s that sci scientists were saying this, that the Museum of Natural History had an exhibit on this, uh, but I think it really speaks to how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Like now, and like like we were talking about earlier, anthropology has obviously come a long way. I'm uh, much more accepting, much more open-minded, much less racist. And I don't know where I was going with that. I just think as bad, it, it is very interesting to learn about all the terrible things that we white people did, but I, I guess I, what I'm trying to get across is I'm glad that we are making a lot of progress past that at this nowadays. Not to say that all the problems are fixed, because they are not, but we are no longer keeping humans in zoos. Uh, well, humans in zoos is not a commonly accepted thing, even if it is happening. Yes. I also think it's important that we learn about this kind of thing, because it's almost a reminder that, yeah, we did some really crappy things in the past. Mm -hmm. Make sure it never happens again. Absolutely. But if anyone listening to this is really interested in the whole scientific racism thing, there is a fantastic documentary called Human Zoos, America's Forgotten History of Scientific Racism. It's completely free. I suggest you watch it if you had time. Where is it? Like, is it, where is uh, it it's just a, It's just a website. It's called humanzoos.org, and they just have it on there. Oh, yes, this one, this one. 